Welcome to 10 Minute Tech Calm. This is Ryan Weber from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. I want to welcome you to the first in a series of episodes I have planned about making technical communication more inclusive. In these episodes, I want to bring in a variety of guests who can help us figure out how to make technical communication more welcoming to a wider variety of audiences and content creators, especially from traditionally marginalized groups. Please welcome the guest for the first episode in this series. So I'm Avery Enfield. I'm an assistant professor in technical communication and rhetoric at Utah State University. And my research works at the intersections of rhetoric and community-batted workspaces. So with specific attention to the communication strategies and rhetoric that marginalized communities employ for self-advocacy. Dr. Edenfield joins us to talk about his research in tactical technical communication the ways that communities break from institutional strategies to form their own communication practices. He has developed this research with several other scholars, including Dr. Lahua Ledbetter at the University of Rhode Island, who planned to join us for this conversation but was unable to due to technical difficulties. Together, they wrote about their research for the proceedings of the recent SIGDOC conference, which was held in early October 2019 in Portland, Oregon. I hope to feature Dr. Ledbetter in another interview soon, but in the meantime, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Edenfield. Welcome to the podcast, Avery. I really appreciate you joining us today to talk about your work with uh, Dr. Lahua Ledbetter about tactical technical communication. And I guess to start out with, can you give us a brief definition of what you mean by tactical technical communication? So for this answer, I'm actually going to draw on an article that I recently published with Jared Colton and Steve Holmes, where we talk more in depth about tactical technical communication than we were able to in the, the short SIGDOC proceedings piece. The article is called Querying Tactical Technical Communication, um, and it just came out in Technical Communication Quarterly. What we said in that article that is that strategies are authorized sets of instructions and practices by institutions that are often in the service of defining, controlling, and policing how bodies speak, write, and interact. So although control has a negative connotation, it's, we, we should note that we all participate in negative and affirmative strategies of control, like filling out census categories to district mapping, and those are all kinds of ways that we interact with that stuff. But to contrast to specific strategies, tactics are individualized appropriations of strategies as forms of resistance. So there's there's lots of ways that that kind of plays out, but I think the more important thing to know is that tactics are important for technical communicators because they reveal a shift in passive consumers of information to active consumers of information. So it's more like everyday individuals making things instead of just expert technical communicators doing it. Interesting. So these tactics are more like ground up technical communication approaches instead of top down. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's a shift from just consumers to user producers. And it often seems to take place in extra institutional spaces. So peer to peer communication or users producing their own documentation of a product. Like you might see that in like a forum, say like a laptop outside of the manual that might come with a laptop you'll see a forum dedicated to that laptop where users are posting questions and other users are responding to those questions. I, I really liked what you said about, you know, there's negative and affirmative control. Was that the language that you used? Yeah, yeah. But it's sort of outside of these sort of strategies for control that, you know, organizations or institutions might use. We're looking at 
more grassroots instances of technical communication. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think strategies do have kind of a negative connotation in general, but I think that there are positive ways that strategies can be used by institutions. But outside of that, these tactics operate outside of of those things in any way, like they're kind of unsanctioned by institutions. One of the things that you argue is that this sort of tactical, technical communication should change some of our definitions of what success means for technical communication, especially when we're talking about some of the marginalized communities that you alluded to um, in your introduction. So can you talk a little bit about some of these alternate definitions of success? Yeah, I'll talk about some of them, but I think it's it's the main thing is that it could it should be defined by the internal standards of that community. So that would be instead of having this kind of broad standard that's external, that's kind of placed upon the work that they are producing, it's it's important for that to come from the communities themselves. So it could serve many purposes, so it, including sustaining the life and well-being of that community. So well-being is defined by that community. I'll give you one example. So one of the things that I've been looking at, and this is this is kind of off the cuff here. <laughs> this is an FYI. All right, I like it. Let's see what happens. Okay, let's see what happens. So one of the things I've been kind of thinking about and I've written about before is a good example of tactics and this kind of definition of success is these documents that sex workers produce for themselves within their own sex working community about dangerous dates. Oh, interesting. So like people you should should avoid kind of thing? Right, or bad cops or whatever. Dangerous people. As a person on the outside, I see that and I believe that many of these documents were used to avoid people. Then I came across a recent study that was done working within that community about these documents where they saw that they were actually used for risk mitigation. So you might still have to go with that person, but maybe you know don't go to a second location with them or don't go with all of your money. Give your money to a friend because they'll rob you. So what success for them looked very different from me as an outsider, which meant just avoidance. For them, it meant not losing all of their money, not getting beat up, that kind of thing. So the the community that creates the documents, they are developing them for purposes that are internal to the group and sort of our ideas of what may or may not constitute success are not as relevant as what the group decides for itself. That's exactly a great way of saying it. And so for me, it would mean avoidance. For them, it might mean risk mitigation. And risk is defined very differently as well within that community. Sure, sure. That's a really interesting example. And you have another example that you talk about at SIGDOC, this conference that's coming up as we were recording is coming up in Portland at the beginning of October. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about your research uh, specifically in that community? One of the things that I've been looking at is this DIY do-it-yourself HRT, which is hormone replacement therapy for trans people. So it's a part of a broader goal of gender transition, and the hormones are a part of that. And I just want to say that because not every gender transition involves hormones or surgery or medical intervention at all. There are different ways of doing it as defined by that person. So in that place, success would mean living safely, you know, transitioning safely and living safely in their gender and safety. And that that could mean concealing the transition. That could mean getting safety defined as transitioning safely in terms of the the hormone levels, not getting dangerous hormones or having dangerous levels. It could mean having the packages arrive discreetly so that 
they're not called out by people in the community or even their own family members. So safety in that sense could be very broad, defined by that person. Sure, defined within the community and by individuals on the individual level within the community. Exactly. And so you might say success just means, oh, you transitioned. But it's it's much more discreet as discreet as in defined by that community, by that person. So in their individual circumstances. So tactics in that community that I've been looking at, it's finding hormones available outside of the medical institution. Uh, Let me back up. So the path that is defined by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH, they set down a timeline and a strategy, an institutional strategy that doctors all over the world follow. It's called the Standards of Care. And it lays out timelines and milestones for gender transition. So for example, if you want to get a type of surgery, you would have, they would say you'd have to be on hormones for this long and you have to have, you know, two years of real life experience. You have to have this procedure done first, that kind of thing. Then also on top of that, not all insurance covers that. And also just because you have insurance doesn't mean you actually have access to it. So if you live in a very rural area, there may be no providers. You might have to fly to meet a provider. Right. So there's, there's all kinds of barriers to that within the institution. And also ideological barriers are one of the number one barriers that a transgender person would face in accessing care. So the provider decides they do not want to provide care for that person. That is the number one barrier. So outside of that, people have found ways to access that on their own. And that could mean finding these hormones online or getting the hormones in some kind of way. And then figuring out how to do their own regimen. Okay. As they're figuring this out within the community, what kind of communication practices are taking place to help share this information and also to um, define these areas of success? So that's a great question. What it looks like so far from what I've done, the research that we've done, this has been a two-year project done with Steve Holmes and Jerry Colton. Most of what we've looked at so far has been repurposed and reconfigured medical documentation from a lot of different sources, from sports medicine, medical research, science journals, flyers doctors put out, like say a little video on how to do your own injection, but it's intended for insulin. And they'll take that and say, well, this is how you can inject your maybe hormone regimen or uh, maybe hormone imbalance in this in this population. And they'll take that and, and work it to to figure out how to do how that applies to to trans transgender people, that sort of thing. So what you've got is a community that is sort of creating from a hodgepodge of other medical literature or whatever, you know, medical how to stuff. Uh, something that particularly suits the needs of the community and the individuals in it. Is that sort of what's happening? Yeah, exactly. It's almost like remixing and sampling that you hear in music, but involving medical documentation instead. So that's what we've seen. And and that that's created in a lot of ways because of the gap, the large gap in, in transgender medical research that, that exists. There's just not a lot of research. And then you take that and then you add these institutional barriers that people face. And, 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 and on top of that, the WPATH standards of care as that institutional strategy. And that's where you have tactics filling the gap for people on these tactical strategies. And within that, success would look like, let's just say, like somebody maybe would, they've procured their own hormones, they've started their regimen, 
the first thing the first thing they're going to do is go get their labs. They don't have a doctor to check those labs, so they take their lab work that that's just done at a lab. They've walked into a clinic, they've had their lab work done, they paid out of pocket for it. They take those lab results and they'll post them online and have folks kind of read through them together and say, "Oh, maybe you need to adjust this. You might, you know, watch out for this level. It's getting a little too high." Or maybe dial this back a little bit. And so together they work through their lab results even. Wow, that's really interesting. So the people are getting, the individuals are getting the labs done and then that are just sort of like generic labs. Is that right? Yeah. And then they post the results online and they get interpreted for the particular needs of this community. Exactly. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's been really interesting. You know, and then again, it's like, I want to transition and so that's that goal that's, that's defined. And success would mean, am I doing that in that way, right? But it, it, it also might mean, hey, what do these packages look like when they come? Oh, go to this place because the packages come in just pl- plain boxes. And so don't go to this place because it's like, you know, the, the name of the, of the company is, will show up on your credit card. And maybe somebody doesn't, you won't want someone to see that. Or it'll be plastered all over the box. And that's kind of... Or even how to access Bitcoin to do it. It's it's defined by that at that individual level by that individual's needs, really. Right, right. So it sounds like it's a mix of sort of culling scientific literature for or medical literature for relevant information and then repurposing it, and also kind of sharing experiences and narratives. Is that right? Yeah, I I think so. They're also sharing. On their own, yeah, experiences and, and narratives, their own stories, or what they've heard. Interesting, and I assume this is happening largely on like chat rooms, or it sounds like there's videos and stuff involved as well. What kind of media do trans people use to interact to kind of share this information? Well, for our research, we only use publicly available information. Um, we didn't go into any communities that required a login or a password. Yeah, only stuff that's available. And and I do want to 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 mention as well that. When people like me who are researchers who are interested in this stuff, uh, maybe people who, are, who listen to this podcast who are be considering this research, I would caution to have just enormous caution when doing that because revealing public information in the term, terms of usernames, the pharmacies, things like that, or even the, the name of the form itself, none of our publications mention the form. And I, I won't talk about it in SIGDOC either. Because losing that means losing access. That can cause enormous harm to that community. And I, I say that because in the past, The Atlantic and The Daily Mail have both done stories on these communities and published the forum name, published the pharmacy, and it resulted in shutting down pharmacies. Oh, no. Yeah. That transitions us nicely to the last question I wanted to ask you, because one of the things that both you and Dr. Ledbetter mentioned in your presentation and your uh, proceedings is this idea of sort of more mainstream technical communicators, whether that be researchers or people who work for the institutions that set up communication strategies that are used, that they should consider the work of these more marginalized communities without appropriating that. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, Dr. Ledbetter was going to talk a little bit more about that, but one of the things that I suggested in my article that I was going to talk about is the participatory design approach, where having the users be a part of the study design 
from the very beginning. I'll give you one example from our recent work. So we knew going in from our preliminary research, we knew what the Atlantic had done and we knew about the Daily Mail because we saw the effects on that community and the way they talked about it. So one of the things that we did was when we designed our research was to, to be very explicit about not using usernames, not naming the name of the forum, being very careful about things like that. But I didn't think about anonymizing the name of the pharmacy. And we were recently contacted because through their research, they found our article on, <laughs> on them and they contacted us and said, hey, I think it's really great that you anonymize this stuff, but why didn't you leave out the name of the pharmacies? And so going forward, that's something we're going to be doing is anonymizing the names of the pharmacies. That's just one example. So having the, the research participants involved in the research design can keep things like that from happening, inadvertently causing harm. I think one of the things that participatory design does is it kind of challenges those unequal power relationships between researchers and participants. It centers the participants, even if it means changing the research design or putting those participants before yourself, leaving things out, even if it's juicy. Sometimes you just kind of have to do that. I think also like recognizing the participants' expertise, you know, even even over your own with the area. To get back to something you were saying earlier, you know, it seems like because these communities have their own definitions of success, you gave us two great examples. It would be hard to even research them without some participation because you might not know your evaluation of the community's work would be incomplete without understanding sort of what they're trying to accomplish. Yes. Yes, exactly. If you understand success with that kind of nuanced, participant-centered, community-centered understanding of success, right? Externally, as a, like evaluating it from external standards, success might mean did you transition into the other gender? But that's not enough. That's very limited. Thinking about it from another perspective, it's letting them set those standards, and you can only get that by engaging with them. I mean, to be clear, researching public information like that, you can, by IRB standards, do it, but it's it's not enough, right? IRB is just the beginning. It's not the end, you know? It's just a check to make sure you're not injecting people with radioactive chemicals or whatever. It's not going to get into this kind of depth of ethics that you're talking about. Exactly. And, and also, like, because they made it public, it's public so that people who are afraid to use their own login to access because of the threat that transgender people face in this country every day, having it publicly available means that that reaches that broader audience. It's not for researchers to get in there and start picking things up. It's not necessarily what it's intended to do. It's intended to help people, and they do it on purpose for that reason. Even at exposing themselves to trolls being found on the surface web for all kinds of reasons. What can we take forward from this? What kinds of things can, especially more mainstream technical communicators who aren't part of these marginalized groups, what should we be thinking of to make our tech com more inclusive? Thanks for the question. That's a good question. I think that one of the things that I would say is that technical communicators who are involved in social justice we need to be centering marginalized users in our research and in our writing. And that requires a partnership with those people, you know, helping them to set the standards of success for your research project. And that might mean taking our own ideas of success, what success looks like, 
you know, is it clear? Is it concise? Is it efficient? And letting that kind of take a back seat to the goals and standards set by that community instead. I also think it means being enormously careful because we, we don't always understand or recognize the vulnerability that people are bringing to the project. Right. Well, and you bring a good example with the thing about the pharmacies in your own article, you know, that it's, it's just, it's hard to know every way that you need to be careful without really a clear participation and an active participation from groups that you're studying. Exactly. I mean, like, sure, like, did the Atlantic do anything wrong? Not necessarily. They followed, like, the, the online standards for research. But people were very stressed and afraid and worried. And in the case of the Daily Mail, it did result in losing a vital resource for people that they depended on. It kind of set them in a scramble a little bit. And we're not just talking about, I mean, you know, that's, that's an existential threat. So I think we have to be enormously careful as well. And we only understand, like you said, what those vulnerabilities are when we engage with that community and let them speak. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you, Avery, for talking with me. I really appreciate it and uh, keep up the excellent research. Oh, thank you for, for talking to me.